Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. I'm Mike O'Donnell, and I am the uh, the practice group leader of the title insurance, uh, real estate litigation, and also the banking litigation group at Riker, um, as well as being the co-manager partner. And with me today, I have Mike Crowley, one of our associates in our team, partner Bethany Abley, and one of the best lobbyists in the state of New Jersey, my partner for over 25 years, Mary Kay Roberts. This is our first presentation of our podcast, Title Nerds. And what we'll do is we're going to talk about a case or two of some interest in the title insurance real estate litigation area, as well as some additional um, items of interest forms from the American Land Title Association. And then Bethany and Mary Kay are going to talk about some statutes in the state of New Jersey that are maybe of interest to you all. And we, um, we thank you all for joining me. And with that, let me start with Mike Crowley. And Mike, you've given us a case to talk about Hall v. Old Republic National Title. And that was a case that actually was in our, in our blog. We also have a blog called the Riker Danzig Banking Title Insurance and Real Estate Litigation Blog. That's a mouthful. That's why this podcast is called Title Nerds. That's not a m- mouthful. And with that, Mike, I know we did a district court, but you gave us, uh, the Court of Appeals came down with a decision March 21st. Why don't you first tell us about some of the facts and things of interest about the district court, and then we can see what the Fifth Circuit did. Sure. So so as you mentioned, Mike, anyone who follows our blog or has seen any of our recent presentations has probably seen this district court opinion uh, before, which came out in 2020. Now, the case concerns a hotel that's located in Lake Tahoe. Uh, it was once owned by Frank Sinatra, D. Martin, uh, and some alleged mobsters out of Chicago, uh, as, as the Fifth Circuit actually pointed out in a footnote. Uh, the hotel's long been the subject of controversy involving prohibition-era tunnels, arson, and, and all sorts of things. But the underlying facts are that the plaintiff was a lender for the construction project to, to renovate this hotel. And the plaintiff only agreed to lend after the contractor agreed to subordinate any potential liens on the property. The project eventually ran over budget, the lender cut off the funding, and the contractor sought priority for its mechanics liens. Ultimately, the contractor and the lender reached a settlement and sought indemnification. Now, in the district court decision, which was out of the Northern District of Texas, the lender had sued Old Republic uh, seeking coverage. The court in that decision first found that any construction work that was completed but unpaid as of the date of the policy might constitute a title defect under the policy, but the court didn't ultimately make a determination because it found that exclusions 3A and 3D of the policy would bar coverage. First, with regard to exclusion 3A, which bars any losses created, suffered, assumed, or agreed to by the insured, the court found that because the lender had cut off funding to the contractor, that that actually created these mechanics liens. The court further went on and said uh, any of these defects were also barred under exclusion 3D, which bars claims for defects attaching or created subsequent to the date of the policy. So the court basically found that even if there was coverage, 
uh, it was excluded by these two exclusions. Uh, and that was the decision issued last year in 2020, which the lender, of course, appealed. And, and what did the Fifth Circuit say? Did you get it right or wrong, or was there a different twist? Tell us, please. Uh, well, well, there was a different twist. So, so the court did agree that there was no coverage. However, this isn't one of those cases where you need to flip to the conclusion paragraph to see where the court's going. So he, here's the opening paragraph of the decision. It says, imagine a seller who typically offers two services, A and B. Now imagine that the seller tells a particular buyer that he is interested in selling him only service A and not service B. The buyer agrees to these terms, but later when it turns out that the buyer would have benefited from purchasing service B, the buyer turns around and claims that in purchasing service A, he actually purchased service B as well. The buyer then sues the seller for refusing to provide him with service B. You might think that this would take real chutzpah to bring that suit and this appeal, and you'd be right. Yet that is exactly what the suit presents. So it seems like the, the Fifth Circuit was going to affirm, right? Exactly. So the court actually, uh, although, as I mentioned, the district court found that the exclusions applied, the court didn't even go that far with the Fifth Circuit. What the court found was that in negotiating this policy, the plaintiff lender had agreed to remove a particular covered risk in the policy, which was covered risk 11A, which protects the insured against any loss or damage caused by the lack of priority of the insured mortgage over any statutory lien for services, labor, or material arising from construction. So essentially, it's a covered risk about mechanics liens. Now, the lender argued on appeal that even though this covered risk was removed, that actually there were other covered risks, including lack of priority mortgage, that actually stepped in and covered these mechanics liens. In rejecting this argument, the court actually found that these other covered risks did not cover the lien loss because the parties had specifically agreed to replace it with substantially narrow coverage. Uh, and what the court found is it said, you know, we're reluctant to say that the party's alteration of a standard form contract is meaningless. Uh, in other words, what the court found was if you negotiate to remove a particular covered risk from the policy, you can't then later claim that that covered risk actually still somehow exists uh, because of something else, because that would essentially mean that that covered risk was worthless in the first place. But so because the court found that the plaintiff was not entitled to coverage under the policy, the court did not address the district court's conclusions regarding exclusion 3A or 3D. And was there something, did the court say something about a 3206 endorsement? Exactly. The 3206 endorsement was what the insured signed, which removed covered risk 11A. All right. Great. For the people who hopefully are listening to this podcast called Title Nerds, that's actually an interesting case. I found it fascinating. And even if you're not a title nerd, you're not going to see an opening paragraph like in that opinion in very many cases around the country. It sounded like the Fifth Circuit was just sick and tired of the nonsense. The, the next thing we want to talk about is what title insurance litigators and people in title industry refer to as the ALTA forms. And the ALTA forms are created by the American Land Title Association, which is a trade group. And Mike, why don't you tell us what the American Land Title Association is? Besides the trade association that my wife, Jennifer, worked at 32 years ago when I met her in Washington, D.C. Well, as you mentioned, it's a trade association that represents title insurers. And among other things, they create the standard form owners and lenders policies for title insurance that most people are familiar with. Now, the prior version of the forms that most people have seen are from 2006. But what we're talking about today is they're actually updating them with new versions that are going into effect as of July 1st, 2021. Now, most title insurance is an industry that's regulated by the states. So how do these ALTA forms get down to the states? 
Uh, well, the, the forms will not go into effect at the statewide level immediately, but once Alta updates these forms on July 1st, they'll get to this get sent to the states for approval. Uh, it might be some time before all the states adopt them, and there might be some minor variations between the states, uh, but these are going to become the standard title insurance policies used in the future. Right, and and the different state trade associations, the New Jersey Land Title, the New York Land Title Association, they're the ones that will actually look at these ALTA forms and present the forms to the state with some slight modifications or what they think is appropriate for the jurisdictions. Is that sort of the way it works, Mike? That's exactly right. So what we wanted to do today is highlight what some of the changes on these forms are going to be from the standard 2006 forms. And with that, why don't you highlight some of the, the changes in the owner's forms that are sort of that are significant? Sure. So the, the first change we wanted to highlight is uh, on Condition 8, uh, which talks about contracts of indemnity. Now, this does not actually change uh, the underlying law, at least in New Jersey, but it makes it much clearer. So what Condition 8 is now going to state is this policy is not an abstract of title, report of the condition of the title, legal opinion, opinion of the title, or other representation of the status of the title. All claims asserted under this policy are based in contract and are restricted to the terms and provisions of this policy. The company is not liable for any claim alleging negligence or negligent misrepresentation arising from or in connection with this policy or the determination of the insurability of title. And it's that last sentence, really, that's the big change. And anyone who operates in New Jersey is familiar with the New Jersey Supreme Court decision called walker Rogi, which said that title insurers who are issuing a policy uh, are not going to be liable for negligence in searching the records. This just pretty much confirms it, and it's also going to be nationwide. And to brag about one of our counsel at the firm, former Supreme Court Justice Stuart Pollack, walker is actually a Justice Pollack opinion that adopted sort of adopted nationwide sort of um, holding that the maximum title insurance company underwriters issue policies and they're liable on contract, not in negligence unless they assume a duty otherwise. So we, we owe Justice Pollock thanks for that decision. What else is uh, new? Something about a date of loss? Tell us about that. Exactly. Now, now, the date of loss, uh, unlike the, the contract of indemnification section, the date of loss is something where different courts have been reaching different conclusions as to what date to use to calculate the date of loss. Uh, so the policy hopefully will clear things up about that. Now, with regard to an owner's policy, the policy, the 2006 version, used to say that the, the extent of liability is either the lesser of the policy amount or the difference between the value of the property with and without the defect at issue. The obvious question, though, is if you're using that latter standard, uh, is the value of the property as of what date? So is it the date that the insured purchased the property, the date that the insured suffered a loss, that it discovered the defect? And different courts have reached different conclusions. The policy is now going to clarify and put in a date of loss. So in this case, what's going to happen for the owner's policy is the date of loss is now going to be the date the insured discovers the defect. However, if there's a complete loss of title, the insured has an option to use the policy date uh, if it requests to do so in writing. Finally, if the insurer chooses uh, to defend and prosecute uh, under condition five of the, of the policy, the insured can use a third option and may choose to use the date the action is concluded or the date the insurer received a notice of the claim. And that brings sort of an important point. We say the forms are going to qualify, uh, clear this up, but it really clears it up only for the closings that go going forward, you still, 
if you're um, dealing with date, date of loss, you do have to look at the, um, the forms that you're dealing with, whether it's the 2006 form, whether it's a, a much later form, a much earlier form than that in 1989. Uh, I think there's a, there might even be a 1982, but you've got, you got to look at the forms through the years because it's the uh, language in the policy provisions that really controls when the date of loss is. So would you agree, Mike? Exactly. We'll still be litigating the 2006 policies for a while. Right. Exactly. And there's also issues that when, when you say the insured discovers the loss, would that also include when the insured discovers the loss and actually reports it? You would have an issue if an insured discovered a loss and did say something for five years, right? Right. Exactly. That, that's under another policy provision. But if there is a delay that prejudices the title insurer, that's another uh, defense that the title insurance company might raise. Right. That they would raise the defense that um, the insurance delay prejudiced, prejudiced the insurer and, and very well could could make that date be five years later if, if the insurer did not report the loss. I think the last thing you had, Mike, and if it's not the last thing, correct me, was the form say something about arbitration and class action waivers. Can you tell us about that? Exactly. The, the third change we wanted to highlight uh, was that there is an arbitration provision in the policy, which does specify that any claims and disputes must be brought in an individual capacity, uh, not as a class action, uh, and that they can go to arbitration where they will use title insurance arbitration rules of the American Land Title Association, which incorporate the AAA consumer arbitration rules. Now, this addition, again, is consistent with recent case law, which actually is the case you litigated, Mike, right? I think to so the case, Bethany, you and I, and, and everyone in our title team litigated a Chase and V Fidelity National title out of the Third Circuit in 2016, which adopted the Supreme Court's decision in AT&T v. Concepcion, which was what really drove a lot of the issues on enforceability and arbitration provisions. This form absolutely leaves no doubt as to the clarity of the arbitration provision and the rules that govern. Did we miss anything, Mike? Nope, I think that's it. Okay, with that, I'm going to turn it over to my partner, Bethany Abley, who I think has been with us now for 15 years and has been my right arm in our title insurance practice. And she will discuss some of the New Jersey laws with my other partner, Mary Kay Roberts. Thanks, Mike. Hello, title nerds. As Mike mentioned, I've been at the firm for about 15 years now, and I'm in our commercial litigation group focusing on title insurance and banking litigation. And we are lucky enough today to have my partner and very good friend, Mary Kay Roberts, with us. So welcome, Mary Kay. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Bethany, it's so good to see you. <laughs> Especially in this virtual world, at least it's good to see each other by Zoom these days. Absolutely. The first piece of legislation that we wanted to talk about today is what has been called Daniel's Law. And this is named after Judge Salas's son in light of the unspeakable tragedy that she and her family suffered recently when her son was murdered by a man apparently seeking out the judge. Mary Kay, can you tell us a little bit about Daniel's Law? Absolutely. And, you know, certainly as a parent, I can only imagine how Judge Salas and her husband are faring under these tragic, tragic circumstances. You know, frankly, when this happened last July in New Jersey, where a shooter came to the judge's home residence, 
you know, on a weekend afternoon, you know, tragically murdering her son, who's 20 years old at Catholic University, had just celebrated his birthday. And, I, you know, I know Catholic honored him even just this past weekend, but also shooting her husband and Daniel's father, you know, right on their doorstep. It's just unspeakable. But our legislature did completely spring into action and took up legislation that has been stalled at the federal level. But they acted quickly in terms of the New Jersey legislature uh, and their usual timeline. Um, and they passed a law in November and um, really designed to prevent disclosure of judges uh, and law enforcement, I mean, it's a pretty broadly written law dealing with the home addresses and contact information of these officials. While it passed in November, uh, it was signed fairly quickly, even on that same day uh, by Governor Murphy. Can you just tell us a little bit about who exactly this law is, whose information specifically the law is trying to protect? It's my understanding that it's not just judges and not just active judges, that it's active, formerly active, or retired judicial officers, prosecutors, and also includes law enforcement officers. Is that correct? Well, Bethany, you're, you're absolutely right. It does apply uh, to active, formerly active, existing judges, uh, retired judges, prosecutors, as well as law enforcement. And this has long been a cry uh, from the judicial and law enforcement communities. And it, it really does have to do with their own protection and their own family's protection. The bill itself ultimately amended our Open Public Records Act, which we all know as OPRA, to require governmental entities to redact the names of certain public officials from public records or otherwise obscure their home addresses or unpublished home phone numbers or obtain their written permission to do so. The second thing the new law did was it made it a crime to post or publish on the internet the home address or unpublished home phone number of these officials, largely under certain circumstances that are, that are specified in the new law. Lastly, it prohibited person a business or association from disclosing on the internet the home address or unpublished home telephone number of these officials under circumstances in which a reasonable person would believe that providing that information would expose another to harassment or risk of harm to life or property and authorizes that official to bring a civil action in the superior court, in fact, for damages under the statute. And the law takes the step of allowing these individuals to also request that any personal information about them that's currently up be taken down, right? And uh, if I'm understanding the law correctly, it's not just for the judges or the officials, but also members of their immediate family. If there's information that's publicly posted on the internet about the officials or their immediate families, they can also request that that be taken down. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. They have a 72 hour window you know, that that request has to be honored. So the official or a member of their family, uh, as you mentioned, uh, can basically request that and that has to be taken down or they can bring an action in court for either an injunction or a declaration 
in which case that they didn't take the information down. And if they're, it's shown not to be taken down, they could be liable for attorney's fees. So it's a fairly stiff penalty. So if the request comes in, frankly, somebody should honor it. Yeah. And now I believe you mentioned earlier that in November, it was passed, I believe, by the assembly and then signed by the governor on the same day in November. And there have recently been some amendments to that and to the effective date of Daniel's law. Can you take us through the recent amendments and the effective date? So you are correct, Bethany. In February of this year, a bill amending Daniel's law was quickly passed and signed, which delayed the effective date of most of the provisions to December 10th, 2021. However, it did leave intact the existing effective date, which was November 20th, 2020, for that part of the law that allows judicial officers, their families, and prosecutors certainly to request that their home address and unpublished phone number remain redacted or not disclosed on the internet or otherwise made available and that such requests have to be honored within 72 hours. So that's still gonna be effective, as I mentioned on November 20th, 2020. As to law enforcement officers, uh, the provisions of the law that will be applicable to them will take effect 18 months, or I believe that's until May, 2022 to make those distinct from judicial officers and prosecutors. And now for all the title nerds out there listening, here's what we're looking at. Do you know if there are any plans at this time on how to handle this issue and the potential issues that could arise from having redacted names on deeds and mortgages? Because as a title nerd, I can tell you right now, the way that title records are searched is using an individual's name. And when you have deeds and mortgages and such documents, they're going to have an individual's name on it as well as the home address. So if a judge purchases a property and gets a mortgage to buy that property, their deed and their mortgage will both have the judge's name and home address on it. And I think that's probably something that's of concern right now to those of us who do title work to wonder, how is this going to work with title searching? Are those names going to be redacted? Are there any plans that you know of to address this issue at this time? I haven't heard of anything either out of the judiciary um, or the, the counties. You know, there, there is an association that represents all of the county clerks as well. But I think that these are certainly important issues in the title insurance area. And, you know, Mike, I don't know if you have heard of anything in, the, in your circles. There's just, there's just concern with, with, with the searching and how to do that. Mary Kay, do you, do you have to get the judge or the law, law office written permission to, to put their address on a document? I think they can request that it be removed. So I would think the reverse would make the most sense just so, to have a paper trail. So perhaps, you know, if you're dealing with a, a closing with a law enforcement officer or a judge, you might want to have them sign a form saying that they've given you permission to put the home address on the deed or the mortgage, no matter how obvious that is. I don't think that's necessarily needed because it's assumed. Uh, particularly judges who know deeds and mortgages, they know their address is going to be on there. The issue, it really comes in if they specifically request it, then you, as I understand the law, 
that deed of mortgage is going to have to be redacted uh, for the name. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. And it, there is a whole body of case law under our Government Records Council, mostly dealing with members of, believe it or not, I, I feel like I even heard about a case involving a shade tree commission member, you know, wanting to make sure that their home address and their phone number was redacted because locally they were getting people picketing in front of their house. You know, I recognize that Daniel's Law presents a much more tragic set of circumstances, but it is for that very reason that our legislature decided to step into this space and really do protect judges, prosecutors, and, and law enforcement officials. Right. And and deeds of mortgages we now know are they're available online. The fortunate thing is the party that would be recording any deed or mortgage would be the county clerk, not the individual. So I don't think the county clerk is going to have any liability. Would you agree, Mary Kay? I would think that they would be protected, you know, based on their performance of their own duties, you know, in accordance with the statute. But if they were asked to redact and failed to, I would think the public offices may be held responsible for, for attorney's fees. That's a good point. So all these issues are really I think as Bethany said, open in the stay tuned, correct? I definitely think stay tuned. I mean, I you know, I would imagine that the judiciary is providing guidance to its own judges and court officials in terms of uh, if they have these concerns, what they want to make sure, you know, does happen. And because this was a U.S. District Court judge, you know, we, we know that federal law enforcement is likely involved as well you know, and, and law enforcement, at least here in the state of New Jersey, as well as the prosecutors associations. And just to circle back to what you had said earlier, Mike, about the written permission, it's my understanding that the way that the OPRA statute is being amended is to say that a state or government agency shall not knowingly post or publish this information without first obtaining the written permission of that person. So I do believe you can have a situation where the judge, for instance, can give permission to have the information published. So, you know, I, I think we can say that if permission is given, there shouldn't be an issue there. But as we've all said, stay tuned. I think it's an open issue. I think we'll see in the next, uh, you know, coming months, coming years, we'll see probably some more amendments to this would be my guess. I don't know, Mary Kay, if you think of that way as well, but that that's my guess is that we'll probably see some more amendments down the line or some other type of adjustment, so to speak. I could certainly see that. I could also see it broadened to other public officials, you know, as I mentioned, because Oprah does have this longstanding practice. And if they're protecting shade tree commission members, the sky's the limit to some extent. Yeah. Switching gears, the, uh, the next piece of legislation I wanted to touch base with you this morning about is one you and I have spoken about many times over the last few years in regard to representing our clients and in particular, <laughs> some of my clients that were engaged in a years long litigation where an alleged Lake Association sought to impose mandatory assessments on probably over a thousand homeowners throughout a town in New Jersey. Some of these homeowners lived miles away from any lake. Many of them had never even been to the lake. Many of them had no desire to ever go to this lake, and most of them had absolutely no idea when they purchased their homes 
that there was any possibility whatsoever that they could be charged assessments for the upkeep of this lake. And as I said, miles away from the lake, some of them had never even realized there was a lake. They purchased their homes, not realizing there's any potential for assessments. And then they were more than a bit surprised and some other words that I cannot use on this uh, recording to be polite, I will just say they were more than a bit surprised when they were then being threatened with liens and foreclosures for not paying assessments to a lake association that they had no idea there was any potential that they would have to owe. It seems like this has been something that's been happening for a while now. The past couple of years, there's been an uptick in these type of cases. Is there any reason for those up to that recent uptick? Well, I have to tell you, the, the set of facts when you first brought them to me seemed so incredible. Uh, <laughs> to be assessed something dealing with a lake and you live nowhere near a lake or had any knowledge of this particular assessment coming down. And, you know, we all live in New Jersey and recognize how high property taxes are to have something like this imposed seemed fairly draconian. And I think, uh, you know, our legislature recognizing that picked up on it on a bipartisan basis. So, you know, you had Democrats and Republicans taking the lead on this. It wasn't only limited to one locale, you know, it was kind of happening around the state and, you know, the legislature jumped on it because, you know, they, they viewed this to be outside the scope of the original law that they had passed. And certainly they felt they had to step in when litigation wasn't necessarily going to get to the result, uh, which often is the case, uh, get to the result that the, that the Lake Association, that those opposed to the Lake Association assessment would have wanted. And so our legislature stepped in and I, you know, I could see the uptick just given, you know, if it was a small amount of money, maybe someone didn't realize it was actually happening, but as these assessments might grow over time, it did probably cause folks to be concerned about it. And my understanding is there's been an issue with these recent cases because of amendments that were made in, I believe 2017, what's been referred to as the Radburn law and that there's been this overreading, so to speak, of the Radburn Law and associations coming in, trying to use those Radburn amendments as they're called. And they, these were amendments to the Planned Real Estate Full Disclosure Act, PRED or PREDFDA. And these associations have been coming in, trying to use the Radburn Law and claiming that those amendments will allow them to seek these assessments. Hence the many angry citizens throughout New Jersey in the last few years who never thought they were part of a lake community or those that thought they were part of a lake community but never realized that they would have an obligation to pay any dues. So it's my understanding that's why we now have this recent amendment, S908, I believe is, is the bill number. So if you can just tell us what exactly S908 says and how it's addressing this issue and this overreading of the Radburn Law. Absolutely, and I think that they, sponsors of it, as I mentioned, on a bipartisan basis, really went back and said, you know, that was not our intent when we when we enacted uh, the Rayburn Law. And so they decided to move legislation that would correct it. It did have some fits and starts. Uh, ultimately, when it reached Governor Murphy's desk, there was uh, a conditional veto. But nonetheless, uh, when 908, S908 was enacted in September, in fact, it was September 30th, 2020, 
they did make it retroactive, uh, which is to those original Radburn amendments uh, to July 13th, 2017. At that time, uh, when they were moving this legislation forward, they included some findings and declarations, which we do see frequently in, in legislation. And it does give you more guidance in terms of the legislature's intent. And at that time, they said it was necessary and in the public's interest to clarify that the changes in the bill uh, did not impose new responsibilities on property owners to pay assessments and other charges. So it did amend PREPTA in two ways in an attempt to fix that issue. First, an association in a community established prior to the effective date shall not be permitted to require property owners to pay assessments and other charges where the property owner's title record does not impose such an obligation unless it's otherwise provided by law. And then the second thing it did was to provide that any liens recorded against such property owner's property after July 13, 2017, that original effective date, by an association for non-payment that is based solely on the misinterpretation that the amendments impose new responsibilities on property owners to pay an association's assessments or other charges, the lien shall be null and void, which is really a significant hurdle. The association's required to promptly discharge the lien and notify the property owner. And if the association fails to discharge that lien, the homeowner may bring an action. So a lot of potential for action under this new provision. And if I recall correctly, the phrase, unless authorized provided by law, that language was not originally in the initial drafts of the bill, which my recollection is the initial drafts were a lot broader than what eventually got passed into bill, into law. And that the phrase, unless otherwise provided by law, was included in the governor's edits to the bill. Is that correct? That is correct. And I think that, you know, ultimately, for those of us that do legislative work, we always say it's like making sausage. You really don't want to watch when it happens. <laughs> Certainly what goes in doesn't necessarily come out the way that it originally was, was originally designed. But you're correct. It was very broad in the beginning. And I think, uh, you know, the governor having the last say on a piece of legislation did take pause. And uh, that's what we consider a conditional veto. He made recommended changes. And one of those provisions was, uh, you're correct, to include unless otherwise provided by law. And that was uh, something that Governor Murphy suggested. So I guess we'll have to wait and see how Lake Community litigation plays out over the next few years and whether the overuse or overreading, as I would say, of the Radburn Amendments continues or if it slows down. In my opinion, S908 was meant to slow it down and to stop that overreading and overuse of the Radburn Amendments, but we'll see what happens and whether or not that language in there that unless otherwise provided by law if that gives the lake associations a way to kind of sneak in there or otherwise give them the ability to impose fees that perhaps homeowners were not thinking that they would owe when they first purchased a property. So again, we'll wait and see. Bethany, it looks like the otherwise provided a law for, for the title nerds out there, that really focuses on what's the state of the title record and whether a lake association can make some type of argument that 
the title records revealed the association and the homeowner was on notice constructively. Is that correct? I think right now it's pretty broad and I, I would be afraid that the associations would use that as broad language and use it as broadly as as they can. Whether that means otherwise provided by law, means case law or statutes, who knows? I, I do think it'll be an interesting area to keep watching over the next few years to see and, if this does slow down. And the one thing I, I think, Mary Kay, correct me wrong, this doesn't correct is the fair share um, doctrine that's been adopted by the appellate division on cases such as the Lake Arrowhead, which essentially says, if you're in a in an area where there's six of you around the lake, it's fair and equitable that the six of you will have to share some burden for maintaining the lake, as opposed to some of the situations we're now seeing where, as Bethany said, there are thousands of homeowners and some of them who have never seen the lake. Is that sort of, is that correct? The fair share doctrine is still out there. Yes, that, that's my understanding as well. But, you know, the one thing that I would say is if you are still seeing a significant amount of litigation just by the addition of that phrase, I would track it because you certainly had a friendly legislature in terms of looking at this set of circumstances and really wanting, you know, the, ultimately the notice, if you live on a lake, you may be assessed for a lake, but if you don't, it caused thousands of people to be assessed. I think the legislature will be watching. Since Mike, Bethany, and I are litigators, we're, we don't have any issues with friendly litigation. <laughs> Our clients might disagree with you on that, Mike, but <laughs> sure they would. And we'll do it. And that's why I have Mary Kay at the firm trying to limit that with clear laws. Well, and we, you know, we frequently do resolve litigation through legislation. So, you know, if you happen to come up against a statute and you're coming up with a result that just doesn't seem to make sense based on intent or really practical set of circumstances, which this one certainly did, we are always there to step in to try to help the clients. You know, it's why we have a full practice firm. I'm based out of Trenton, outside COVID, not in Trenton as we speak, but but certainly we're, we're there to help as clients come up against statutes that don't seem to make sense, so. Mary Kay, while we have you, there's one other piece of legislation that I'd like to touch base with you on, and that is the pending legislation regarding the timely recording of residential deeds. And recording is something that we title nerds are definitely interested in. And it's my understanding that there's pending legislation now about recording of residential deeds. Can you just give us a brief status update on that before we end today? You're correct, Bethany. We have a bill um, and it actually has seen some activity. It's been in since 2016 without any committee action. But this year, A3396, we saw reintroduced uh, in February 2020. And it's primarily being driven out of Mercer County by the two sponsors, Assemblywoman Reynolds Jackson and her running mate, Assemblyman Anthony Varelli. It did uh, receive release from the Assembly Appropriations Committee, but it was amended recently in March 2021 to make some floor amendments. And essentially what it will do is give purchasers 90 days after delivery of the deed to record deeds for residential purposes. If it takes place more than 90 days after the delivery date of that deed, a late fee of $10 per day will be assessed up to $500. I do know that it has the support of the New Jersey Realtors 
So it's looking positive that Senator Turner's companion bill, S1319, uh, which is in the Senate Community and Urban Affairs Committee, may see some activity. Typically, if a bill is amended on the floor, it will then be voted on the next time the assembly's in, which is towards the end of May. So this May-June timeframe that's coming up, we see a flurry of activity, certainly prior to an election. So I could see this one getting some legs. Good to know. We'll have to keep an eye on that. One thing I was wondering, what happens if it's not the purchaser's fault that the deed wasn't recorded on time? It's my understanding that the deed references that the purchaser will be the one charged with late fees if it's not recorded within those 90 days. But what if it's not the purchaser's fault? What if it's someone else's fault, for instance, that it's not recorded on time within those 90 days? Is there still going to be a late fee? You're correct. If the delay is the fault of an agent or someone other than the purchaser, the late fee would be imposed on that person who failed to record it in a timely manner, not on the purchaser. It won't carry forward. There's also a provision in there that grants an extension if the county recording office is closed on that final day before the late filing would be imposed. And then the late fee would not be imposed if there's a delay because the deed is being held in escrow. And are there any exceptions to this? I know it only applies to residential properties. Are there any exceptions of anyone that wouldn't have to pay the fee? No, you're correct. It only applies to residential properties. And one of the proposed amendments made on the floor is that the late fee will not be imposed on any state entities. And I guess my last question is, where does the money go? These late fees that it looks like are going to be collected. And I say it looks like just because I've been in the title world enough that I can tell you I've seen my fair share of cases where stuff was not recorded <laughs> within 90 days. So the money that's being collected, what happens to that money? Where's that going to? Well, it is designed to go to help combat homelessness, but you're correct. And I, and I think like most late fee provisions, oftentimes it takes a few times for it to hit and probably to hit at that maximum. And then likely folks will start to speed things along rather than be exposed to any sort of fee. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. And I know you had mentioned earlier, this is still pending and it might be something that comes up in the next couple months. So just like the other things we've spoken about today, another thing for us to keep our eye on and watch it and see how it plays out. And well, it makes sense. We have, if you count assembly and Senate bills that are often duplicates, we have over 10,000 bills that are currently introduced. So we have, as we typically call it, a flurry of legislation whether or not each of those bills receives action remains to be seen. But on something like this, given the fact that it was recently amended on the floor, that's typically a signal that there's going to be some additional action there. So just remember that legislation is very fluid. All of the bills that we've talked about here, copies of the laws can be accessed either reaching out to Riker Danzig or certainly publicly available on the legislature's website. We know there's been some activity on the proposed restrictive covenant redaction law as well, and that's S-2861. It passed the Senate in March fairly handily, and so that's over in the Assembly, so we could see some activity there as well. So things remain uh, certainly up in the air in the New Jersey legislature. Great. Good to know. Well, thank you so much, Mary Kay, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This has been very informative, and I hope 
all of the title nerds out there also thought so. And as we mentioned, stay tuned. We will keep an eye on these things and let you know of any updates in the future. Thank you, Bethany and uh, Mary Kay. And thank you, Mike, for your presentation. I thought it was very, uh, very informative. Thank um, you. This ends the very first podcast of Title Nerds. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.